the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3 on your drive home. It is a delight to have in studio with me former congressman representing the old Arizona 4th Congressional District, Mr. John Shattuck, the Honorable John Shattuck. He is the head of Shattuck Associates, S-H-A-D-E-G-G. Anyone who has a problem with the government, had a problem with the government, or might have a problem with the government, he is here to help you. That's what Shattuck Associates does. And, uh, John, you know, it's a funny thing, this this kind of week. Uh, typically, uh, this this kind of last week of August going into September, going into Labor Day, tends to be a soft news week historically. We don't have that anymore. There are no soft news weeks anymore. There are no soft uh, – there is no absence of politics anymore. And uh, I want to do some scandals, and I want to do uh, some history and philosophy with you too about this country based on an interesting op-ed that Karl Rove wrote saying – We've had it worse uh, in America, the divisions. We'll get to that. But first, I was, I was talking with my audience yesterday. You've, when you were in Congress, you've investi- you, did a, you conducted a lot. You were part of a lot of investigations of the administration. I was just saying, you know, you look at these emails. I guess yesterday when I reported it, it was like 3,200. I think we're up to 5,000 now with the National Archives that Joe Biden, when he was vice president, uh, uh, used with three different pseudonyms. Just, I want people to kind of put themselves into a frame of a state of mind. You're a high government official, and you obviously have your official email account. And you wouldn't blame someone for having also, you know, a personal account on Gmail or whatever for things that just have nothing to do with the government. And, but then you create three pseudonymous emails separate from that, the frame of mind to do that, and then the frame of mind to go about thinking, wait, I need to send this on that fake named email. There's a real, what we might call men's right, there's a real, there's a real sense of, 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 of wrong, of men's right, there's a real sense of something really untoward going on when you're in that realm where you have to kind of think about not only creating three extra pseudonyms, but then deliberately going off your government email, your regular personal email, to go into that area. There's just something very creepy's not quite the right word, but something with a very unlegal intent that's going on. You have to have a real guilty mind to be doing something like that, or certainly a very deliberate mind that's that's weird. It's clear that you thought it through a lot yeah. if you felt the need to create three different ones. And it's clear that you intently did not want the general public to know that. So if there were absolutely nothing on there except, you know, uh, hey, dear, are we selling celebrating Billy's birthday tonight? Uh, then, you know, what would you need three of those for? But then the the other thing that and with fake names, yeah, with fake names. Right, that's the thing. By the way, I like the fact that the press, when they first surfaced this, you called them aliases because yeah. they are aliases. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing that's amazing is I don't know. I tried yesterday to 
figure out how many different times has the president been asked point blank, point blank, did you ever communicate or talk? How, how often did you talk or when did you talk or did you ever talk with your son about his business dealings with other countries? And he, in every instance, during the campaign and substance of the campaign, he has to have understood that those were meaningful questions. There had to be some reason. Turns out the reason is his son was incredibly engaged with foreign governments. And you say flat no, never, 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 never. had any discussions having, with my son. Having had to go to the effort of creating three different aliases yeah. so that you could talk with your son. How much of it in code? How much of it did he actually ever turn over to the archives? And then the the, the insult to injury is... How does the archives get off saying we're not going to turn them over? Who pays all those people? You and I as taxpayers pay for the Library of Archives. We pay for every staffer in the dang building. And and somehow they think they can just say, well, we're not going to turn them over. And and as I understand it, picking it up just today, they're now saying, well, we're not going to turn them over unless and until the former president. Who is he in all of this? And the current president tell us we can. They're not their records. They weren't maintained on their personal phones. They obviously believed they were government records or they never would have turned them over to the library and archives to begin with. They included the president's schedule. They included uh, comments by him that I just talked to the president of Burisma or I just talked to the president of Ukraine. Uh, These are obviously public records that the public deserves to see. And now they're playing games with this. And and it fits this pattern. You know, they wouldn't show us Hunter Biden's computer. They wouldn't show us the 1023. They tipped off Hunter's uh, attorneys before they were before the investigators Mm -hmm. were allowed to search. It's just like, who do these people work for? Apparently, they have a belief that they work for Joe Biden personally. Yeah. And that. And, and that these are not government records. These are Joe Biden's personal records that can be locked up at Joe Biden's whim. Yeah. Now, they don't take that attitude toward the records that uh, former President Trump had at Mar-a-Lago, but they sure take that ad, that attitude now. Well, we're the government. Uh, we kind of like Joe Biden. We know that in this town we need to protect him. So uh, we'll let he and the former president uh, uh, decide if they get released at all. Yeah, I was thinking of the White House plumbers that Nixon had, mostly a bunch of rogues, former CIA operatives like Howard Hunt and people like that, a rogue operative in the political department like Chuck Colson, perhaps, a few people like that before Chuck became a great guy. And I was just thinking as you were talking, the plumbers have become the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice is today's plumbers running this interference. I'm telling you, I continue to believe and— There's no momentum, I don't think, building behind this. But I think uh, if um, the House comes back in next week and starts its impeachment inquiry into Biden, they will be stonewalled in every direction. And I think they ought to start immediately by filing uh, whatever the petition for impeachment against uh, the attorney general uh, and against Uh, David Weiss and saying, look, you know, we see what you have done. You instructed uh, clearly uh, you instructed agents at at in your employ to uh, turn over information to Hunter Biden's attorneys before the search happened so that they could move the evidence out of where it was. You 
you sat on the Hunter Biden computer all through the impeachment of President Trump over that very episode. And uh, watched and, and observed while 51 intelligence officials, former intelligence officials, spread the canard that this looked like Russian disinformation when you had in possession the information that it most definitively was, was not. not. You could have said something either individually to each one of those guys and gals or to the media, and you didn't. It you is didn't. clear You to observed me. that scandal. If that's not obstruction of justice, I don't know what is. So uh, I think Merrick Garland needs to be called to the bar, and he has to explain his conduct. He has to explain, for one thing, I have to explain why in God's name he picked David Weiss to be the special prosecutor, the one guy who had been doing it but not doing it for five years. The one guy who's really not qualified by statute or practice. Exactly. Again, to remind the audience, a special prosecutor by this by, by the Code of Federal Re- Regulations has to come from outside the government, not just outside the Department of Justice, outside of the government. That's what makes them a special counsel. And not only was Weiss... Inside the government, he was inside the Department of Justice. It's almost as if Merrick Garland went to the one guy who was the least qualified and least legally able to do this. There's no legal remedy other than impeachment. It's not, There's no enforcement other it, than impeachment. It's not almost as if. Yeah, it, it, is, it is, in fact. Yeah. He picked the one person yeah. who had spent five years proving he would not investigate uh, the Biden family and its activities uh, no matter what, he'd yeah. proven that he wouldn't do it. And he'd proven it by the time he's named, he'd proven it by approving of the plea deal. Yeah. And the plea deal is shocking. Uh, it, it, it fell apart him, under one question from a federal judge, you know. <laughs> and, and it gives the guy immunity for for things he wasn't even charged with and arguably for th- for crimes he might commit in the future. Right. And, and, and even the prosecutors in the room looked and said, when asked... Uh, have you ever seen this kind of information hidden in a uh, a report that's attached that the judge never reads? No, Your Honor, I've never seen that. <laughs> never seen oh, man, there's a lot of this things is, that have changed, including the way federal prosecutors conduct This is conduct our them, so. Justice Department right. supposed to represent us. That's right. I have to wonder, when the executive branch uh, engages in this kind of activity and you have an attorney general that is this corrupt, how do the people protect themselves? And, and the answer has to be... Impeachment. It's the only tool the Congress has. But I think they ought to go after Merrick Garland and David Weiss and let uh, President Biden just twist in the wind as he watches the evidence come out. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Congressman John Shattig is my guest. John, I want to do a little uh, political science, a little philosophy, a little history with you. I was raising this with my audience earlier in the week. And you're like, perhaps, if David Weiss is the least uh, qualified person to be a special prosecutor, you're like perhaps the most qualified person to engage in the discussion I want to have with you here. It's based on a piece by Karl Rove in the Wall Street Journal about a week ago. America is often a nation divided. Politics is ugly and broken. But it was worse in the past. And I just want to I challenge some of this, but there's something here and he's not talking about the Civil War. He's going back to the 60s and 70s. Let me just give you a little pressy of what he writes. Uh, The peaceful civil rights process of the 50s and early 60s 
were met with state-sanctioned violence. Harlem exploded in 1964, followed by a riot in Philadelphia. Watts went up in flames in 65. Chicago, Cleveland, and San Francisco the next year. Total of 163 cities from Atlanta to Boston to Milwaukee to Newark to New York and Portland suffered widespread violence in the summer of 67. April 68, Martin Luther King is assassinated. Riots broke out in more than 130 cities. 47 were killed in that violence. Two months later, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, That same year, uh, George Wallace, running for president, won five states in the Deep South. Uh, And then we had, in 1965, protests over the Vietnam War. Uh, National Guard kills four college students at Kent State in 1970. Protests all around that. 35,000 anti-war protesters assaulted the Pentagon in 1967. Here's the big one. The U.S. experienced more than 2,500 domestic bombings between 1971 and 1972. So, that is a recitation of that history that most people haven't thought about or put together with that great collection, by great meaning large, that great collection of how tumultuous the late 60s were. And I would add to it, you know, we think now, I guess in the light of history, the distance between John Kennedy's assassination and Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, there was some time there, there was a little bit of distance, it was five years We think five years from here, Donald Trump was in the second half of his presidency. It's yesterday. It's yesterday. Now, some of us who weren't around for some of this, like myself, don't have a good appreciation of what that must have felt like to live through. You were old enough to be cognizant of these goings on in those days. And I wonder with that recitation, is it worse now or was it worse then? And I have my own set of thoughts, but I'd love you to just riff on what your memory is. I I know I dramatically spun you down memory lane decades from where we are now, but it's interesting to put all that violence in perspective. Um, Challenging question. I would tell you that at first blush, my reaction is that it it is worse now. And at least uh, to me, we had those instances, but the major difference was that most of that violence occurred over very deep causes where the people, the demonstrators, uh, were directly impacted disagreed with government policy and decided that they needed to demonstrate it and show it. And and so uh, you had uh, riots and you had civil disobedience while I was in college uh, over civil rights, uh, a very, very important issue. And uh, the confrontation of the government over its civil rights policy uh, to me seemed justified uh, and it, I, I suppose you never uh, justify violence, but there was a wrong that people were seeking to right. Uh, the all, same is true with the disagreement over the Vietnam War. Um, I would argue that it's different now because what I see today is not what I saw then. The people were not uh, acting 
because they saw and were uh, upset by public corruption and a deterioration in society's values, maybe a breakdown of what America is. Um, We may have been questioning some specific policies, but we still believe that the truth was the truth. Uh, We were a nation of laws. We were struggling with some specific issues. Now I see an abandonment of most of the values, and I see a level of public corruption that I've never witnessed. And I think the government, I I think the people are in shock uh, at government's incompetence today and also in its abandonment of those fundamental principles. And they go, wait a minute, this is not what I learned in civics. I, I learned that we are a nation of laws, not of men, that we do believe in equal protection under the law. And, and that, uh, there was respect, uh, even in those days, for people you disagreed with. Today, it is all the politics of division. Uh, maybe underlying it was that we were a, a nation that uh, approved of its neighbors, saw each other as fellow Americans, and were arguing over uh, what the policies ought to be. You know, are our civil rights policies wrong? Uh, is the Vietnam War not justified? Now I see us hating each other. I see uh, politicians and the media working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to divide us and to rend asunder, asunder um, the kind of the fabric that hold us, holds us together as a nation to question whether America itself is even good. Back then, we talked about whether a policy was good. Now, we're talking about whether America itself is good. And there are a dramatic number of Americans who either through education or indoctrination or uh, maybe just angry, anger, uh, have concluded that uh, America isn't a great nation that needs to keep reexamining itself. They've concluded that nation that America was a is a bad nation and was a bad nation from the outset. So to the extent that Rove says uh, some t- some things were worse, there, you know, uh, there may have been uh, civic violence. There may have been bombings. There may have been violence. I don't think society itself or the foundation of the nation was as much in jeopardy as it is now. That's beautiful. And it creates a couple silos where my brain went on the analysis as well that I want to examine with you after this break, if I can, because I think that's the right analysis. And um, I think a lot of it has to do with media and maybe not the difference of ideological media bias, but maybe the suffusion of the new kind of media we're living in and something about what you were describing, which were the underlying values of the America that took place in versus the underlying values of today's America. Let me pick up on both of those with you when we come right back. Congressman John Shattig is my guest. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. John Shattig is my guest, former congressman, uh, 16-year congressman, rec- uh, representing Arizona's 4th Congressional Dist- uh, District, Old 4th Congressional. We're having an interesting, I think, an interesting conversation about a very interesting thesis of Karl Rove's, 
which John and I aren't quite buying into for, I think, a lot of similar reasons. He does this recitation of this tremendous collection of violent episodes that rocked this country in the 60s, saying that we were more divided than... John, I think there are a couple things. You put your your finger, you put your hand, you put your arm right into it and on it. First of all, the the lesser part of this, we'll get to the bigger part in a moment, the lesser part of this to me might have something to do with the media. Let me take the issue of the Kent State shootings. Four college students shot by the National Guard. I wasn't, you know, <laughs> I was, I was just, I wasn't aware of this at the time, but I can imagine how awful that story was, and I know how awful that whole episode was, and I know we got a song from Neil Young over it, but I'm guessing after about a month, people were on to the next thing. I'm guessing if you had today four college students shot by the National Guard, this would be a story that would not go away. It would not fade into another story. I can't imagine how this country would handle that kind of thing taking place today. And I think part of this is social media. When any of these incidents took place that Karl Rove is describing, including the 2,500 domestic bombings from 1971 to 1972, which virtually no one knows anything about unless they know the history of Bill Ayers and the Weather Underground, which 10 people know about, so to speak, that would be all over social media today. That would be all over the alternative news. It would be all over talk radio. It would be all over Twitter, Facebook, you name it. Whereas I'm guessing in those days, it was a one-night story and people moved on to the next thing. So I don't think it had as lasting an impact then or as dramatic an impact that it did at the time. First thesis. Second thesis that you really dug into. We were a different country then with different values. I often like to speak of America's capacity for self-renewal. We go through a lot of dales, but we find the hills. We have this tremendous capacity for self-renewal. There are these deep remnants. <laughs> Sorry to use that title. <laughs> we have these deep remnants, or did, in this country. And while, yes, <clears throat> the 18 to 25-year-olds and the deranged in the 1960s were creating a lot of havoc, um, there was enough, shall we say, adult supervision, or there were enough adults in the room, shall we say, that had the broader perspective, the longer perspective. Um, you could find professors on college campuses that would denounce these things rather than bail these things out, let us say. Uh, you didn't have a corporate America that would have been on the side of these things as you would, let's say, today. Uh, you wouldn't have had legal institutions that would have bought into these things. Uh, who was the great lefty lawyer then, William Kunstler? Yep. He was an outlier. Today, he would be representative of the ABA generally. We were a different country. The values were different based on what you said, based on the World War II generation that understood the longer, bigger view. That's pretty much been all shattered. And again, maybe another reason why we're different today. No one would have taken seriously a 1619 project in 1968. Today, it's the coin of the realm. Fair enough? I, I think that nails it, and that is the reason. It's clearly... We are a very different nation. Uh, at that time, we had the values that were the foundation of the nation were agreed upon by the vast majority of people. Even people who 
said, okay, the Vietnam War is evil and it's got to be stopped and I've got to do anything and everything I can to stop it. I'm going to go to the streets. Fundamentally, their belief in the rule of law, the Constitution, uh, their duty to their neighbors, their their sense of community and of being different because they were Americans, they shared that uh, those fundamentals and they argued over individual items such as uh, discrimination. And so you could fight with somebody over an issue, but you were fighting uh, as kind of similars, that is, people who fundamentally agreed on the basic values. You're onto something so big here. It's short segment, longer one coming back. Let's just take the break and come back on it because you're onto a big point here. I'm Seth Leibson. He's John Shattuck. How different is America from the 60s today? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Shattuck is my guest, kind of having an interesting historical and philosophical discussion about the picture of the 1960s, really the late 1960s and early 1970s, and the violence and tumult and divisions then versus now. And though the numbers are possibly greater than, for example, in Two Wit, most people don't know that between 1971 and 1972, there were 2,500 domestic bombings. Uh, we don't have that now. Um, but John and I's thesis, Congressman Shaddix and my thesis, is that it's yet worse. Another example, John, Jane Fonda poses on a North Vietnamese anti-aircraft gun in 1972, damn near loses her career over it. Today she would be given – she would be given ticker tape parade, someone like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. OK. There, there's another kind of thing we're trying to put our fingers on about what a different country we are. today. Then there was a generalized revulsion towards communism. You may have not liked the Vietnam War, but people generally understood the fight against keeping a country free from a communist takeover because of the revulsion to communism. Today that revulsion is gone. In fact, communism isn't so much reviled today. I, I was making the point to David. You would know better. I think there's more sympathy towards communism in this country today than there was in the McCarthy years. Oh, absolutely. Not okay. a question about okay. it. This, this recent incident where I think it was a young woman, although I've heard somebody say it was a young man, wears the don't tread on me symbol oh, yeah, on a T-shirt. Boy, right, right. And they, I, th- I think it's a her. They kick, immediately kick her out of school. She says – and she's 12 years old and she says – if I'd have had a uh, hammer and sickle, the yeah. symbol of the Communist Party on my T-shirt, they wouldn't have batted an eyelash. Right. ASU uh, started classes two weeks ago, and they had a student recruiting table. Yeah. And they had the Students for Socialist Revolution. There you Big go. Big red banner of Karl Marx with the hammer and sickle. With the hammer and sickle. And it said, supports Communist Revolution. No one said a word. Dennis Prager comes. 39 professors call him a white nationalist. That's Anyway, the tolerance for communism— is is much greater now. You you take the point. Stunningly greater now. Yeah. I mean, it's just things that we took for granted back then and accepted have changed, and it's clearly uh, a combination of the education system and the media, and a a that's what makes it softening worse. of the values. That's what makes there, it worse. you know, there was a time when uh, nobody even questioned when whether or not right was right and wrong was wrong and the truth was the truth and if you if you were asked point blank have you ever talked with your son about his business dealings over, overseas and you said repeatedly no 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 and then it was discovered that that was a 
bald-faced lie, there'd have been some reaction to That's it. That's right. I, I, I even think it, you know, it's, it's a loss of – some of it's a loss of respect for the, for the nation within ourselves. I think almost nobody in the 60s and 70s questioned the American dream. You know, they believed that if you worked hard, you could achieve the American dream whether you had nothing. My dad grew up with nothing. I mean, literally nothing, and uh, he he did very well. Uh, and people believed you could do that. Today, people find excuses for saying, no, 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 that's a fraud. You, you can't do that. If you're not born into the right society, you can't rise above it. It's part, part of it. I love Tim Scott when he, when he talks because he epitomizes the greatness of America. But those things have changed, and how you turn that around— and get back to where people uh, respect each other, even though they may disagree on an issue. That's 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 going to be hard. And the religiosity was different. Yep. Here's a statistic I got from the New York Times over the weekend. Blows me away. Ready for this? I'm glad you're sitting down. Over the last 25 years in America, more Americans left the church than became Christians during the First Great Awakening the Second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham Crusades combined. In the last 25 years, more Americans left the church than became Christians during the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham Crusades combined. That does something to a society like ours, too, doesn't it? No question about it. Um, As a nation— and maybe as a world, we have simply moved away from a belief in God. And that has a gigantic impact. Um, it's all about me and I now, yep. isn't it? And, uh, and, and people, I think today, because they lack that fundamental relationship with God or the desire to have it, they say, well, why should I abide, abide by the principles that the founders laid down. Why should I tell the truth? Why should I work hard for my employer? Why shouldn't I, you know, put in whatever I need to as a minimum and then move on? Uh, all those things have changed and changed dramatically. I, I served 16 years in Congress, and I wasn't there very long when I realized that if you want to save the world, it's not going to be in the Congress. Right. It's going to be. I've changed my church. views about this too. I used to think about big change, and now I think about small change. The yep. family too, and fatherlessness. The fatherlessness, white, the stunning numbers. The stunning numbers. So in those years that Karl Rove is describing, we are now a hundred and fifty percent greater in the white population fatherless. In the white population, it's 150% greater. We can talk about other ones, but let's just talk about that one for a moment. The marriage rate. The marriage rate has declined about 50% since Ronald Reagan's reelection. These things will change a country, John. They make a difference. Yeah. There's just no disputing it. They make a difference. And how we turn that corner and get back. Um, I have a, As I've mentioned, I think I have a dear friend who for a period of time was the ambassador to the Netherlands. Uh-huh. And I talked to him not long after he got there, and we we're talking about the churches. And he says, you know, they've been turned into malls or right. apartments or right. whatever. And it is, you know, Europe is essentially uh, devoid of belief. Yeah. And you pay a price for that. Yeah, I think so. And I think those things, you know, you talk about the religious adherence, you talk about the marriage rate, 
you talk about belief in the fundamentals of this country. Those things are so very different from the 1960s where we could weather those storms, where we did have the capacity for self-renewal. We went from 1968 and, uh, excuse me, we went through all the violence of the mid-60s to a 1968 election of Richard Nixon on a platform of Bring Us Together. We go from the riots of 2020 to the election of a president and vice president who were bailing out the rioters. Right. That's a different country. Openly buying, you know, bailing yeah. out the yeah. rioters and imposing no punishment right. on them whatsoever. You talk about the shock, uh, sh- shocking evidence of uh, that we do not have a just um, justice system that's based on equal treatment of everybody in the system, you know, equal before the law. Look at how the 2020 rioters were te- have been treated or yeah. have been many of them not punished in any way, shape, or form, and now we openly admit they're not punished, and contrast that with the the punitive, right. uh, stunningly punitive, even unconstitutionally punitive treatment of the January 6th rioters. Exactly. Put them in jail and, and deny them habeas corpus and leave them there for two years. Or an ex-president who happened to be a Republican. John Shattuck, it is so good having you in studio. Thanks for being here, sir. Great fun. Thank you. You betcha. Be right back with a closing thought. Want to thank our sponsors, Why Refi. Uh, they've been getting a ton of calls from y'all, and we and they thank you for supporting uh, their investment that actually helps people. Why Refi um, is a great investment. It is a secure, collateralized portfolio where you can earn up to 10.25% in a fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the Federal Reserve or the stock market. You can turn your income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like. There are absolutely no fees. There is no reduction or penalty on principle. If you ever need your money back at any time, think of that freedom, and you'll get your monthly statement with no surprises. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. That's 888-YREFI24. You can also check them out in person. They're headquartered here on Scottsdale Road in the 101, and they welcome anyone to come by. It's no good time, except perhaps at the end of that last interview with John, to uh, read this email I so wanted to read to you from a listener yesterday when we were talking about some of this stuff. Doug in Glendale writes, On today's show, meaning yesterday's, you were marveling at how a people without liberty, security, and fundamental prosperity would face almost any oppression to obtain them, but those who have them can sometimes abandon them. Seeming to long, seeming along for the opposite as though it was something to covet. I grew up in the 60s. I knew Vietnam was a rallying point for the counterculture, but even then I couldn't fully understand how we could take everything that the Depression and World War II generation worked and fought for and see it as empty and worthless, something disposable, to use your words, Seth. Your show yesterday helped me realize something. No matter how much a person may achieve in life, the fundamental need of the human heart goes beyond everything this world can offer. When you reach the end of the rainbow and the pot of gold doesn't satisfy your deepest needs, where do you go next? Isn't it interesting, he writes, that our currency currency still says, in God we trust. If you trust in the currency and gather all you can, it won't satisfy the deepest need of the heart. If you fight for and achieve liberty, but not the liberty of the soul, what can you pass to the next generation that is incorruptible? If we accumulate every earthly thing but nothing eternal, then we will look somewhere else for our paradise. But if we have eternity settled, 
are loved and forgiven by one whose love doesn't fail, and see every good thing as a gift of grace, then even the most humble of circumstances is overflowing with blessings. To that heart, liberty, dignity, opportunity, prosperity, and hope are the fruit of a tree whose roots run deeper and offer a stability that isn't easily shaken or deceived. Just my thoughts. Thanks for keeping us thinking. No, thank you for those thoughts, Doug. I wouldn't use the word just. They're big ones and they're deep ones. And a good thing to end this show on today. Thank you, Doug. Thank you all. Thank you, David. Uh, Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Leibson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.